Welcome to the Cutting Edge Health Preventing Cognitive Decline podcast. I'm Jane Rogers. Welcome back. Dr. Yoshi Ram is our guest today. We're taking a deep dive into the use of extracorporeal blood oxygenation and ozonation, better known as EBU, for boosting your immune system. We also get into the use of methylene blue to help some of the underlying issues that can lead to cognitive decline. Briefly, Dr. Ram founded Oasis Family Medicine in Glendale, California, which is a suburb of Los Angeles. He's a board-certified osteopathic family physician. So, Yoshi, I'm very glad to have you on the podcast. Thank you. Happy to be here. Thank you. We're going to unpack two things to start with that I think are very exciting for this community trying to prevent cognitive decline. The first one has to do with a special ozone treatment called EBU, which I'm a big fan of. And the second one has to do with methylene blue, which I also can really see the efficacy in. So tell us, first of all, how you got into this. I want to hear your story. Yes. Why are, why are you focusing on helping people with Lyme and, and the kind of practice that you have established? Yeah, it's really through my family. I grew up in Northern California, and my mom was probably one of the earlier people that we recognized or that was recognized to have had Lyme. And so she's had it for 40 years, you know, maybe even a little longer than 40 years. And so I grew up with her health concern. And then my brother had meningitis and after that had epilepsy growing up. And so I was always a little bit more exposed to ideas of healthy and it being Northern California, my parents were hippies. And so I kind of had that more natural healing tendency around me. So I think mostly because of my brother, I wanted to go to medical school and and through residency and Mm -hmm. in residency, I was definitely like, okay, there's a lot to this Western medicine absolutely has its place. I could see where it did in the emergency room surgeries, right? When necessary, absolutely beautiful things, but it became so clear to me that from a chronic disease management standpoint, it just was not the best option out there. And so... Mm -hmm. It was very much, okay, what can I add into my toolbox here? And I started my practice right away. Within a year, my dad got diagnosed with ALS. So while I was already kind of on my path towards getting more holistic education to, again, add to my toolbox, ALS being kind of, quote, irreversible, at least at the time, I just went down the rabbit hole. And so at that point, it was just everything I came in contact with. How can I learn more about this? Is this appropriate for my practice, the way I want to practice medicine? Or do I learn about it to be able to refer people, patients Mm -hmm. to that, to a person who's an expert in that particular area of healing? And so, yes, I'm a physician, I'm a doctor, but really I want to think of myself as a healer. And when someone comes in front of me, it's how can we, how can I teach that person to heal themselves? And that's, that's kind of my framework. And that's how I came into where I'm at today and being that healer at whatever level I am at, always trying to get better. There's so much to learn. And I just, I have an undying passion for learning more and more. And I wish I could know it all, but I know I never will be. And the more I learn, (laughs) the more I know I don't know, right? (laughs) Yeah. yeah. Well, I wish we could clone you. We need many, many more practitioners who are as passionate as you are, Yoshi. So let's dive into this. You are doing something with ozone in your practice that not every practice does. And tell me about it. Tell me, first of all, what's the efficacy of ozone? Why should someone even want to consider that if they want to make sure that they stay cognitively healthy as they age? 
Yes. So you mentioned EBU earlier on. Extracorporeal blood oxygenation and ozonation is what EBU stands for. But first, I just want to kind of set the premise that there's a lot of different types of ozone therapy, and it goes from being very non-invasive. So Mm -hmm. people can do home rectal ozone or vaginal ozone, and then you can kind of get into a more of a medical office and do some major autohemotherapy where they take out a little bit of your blood, put it in a bag, and then inject some ozone into that blood and it becomes ozonated. And then it just gets dripped back into a person, kind of like a normal IV almost. And then there's a couple of other modalities out there, but it's kind of like the biggest step up is this EBU therapy. And it's it's a little bit more invasive because it's usually two arms. So a vein coming out and the blood goes through this machine where it gets ozonated mm-hmm. and oxygenated. And then it comes around and comes back into typically the other arm. And the beauty of this EBU machine is that there's a filter. And so there's this huge surface area where ozone and oxygen can come in contact with lots of blood on a continuous basis. And we can do it at very gentle concentrations of ozone so that the body really handles a massive amount of ozone, but handles it very well so that very few people actually get a Herxheimer's or a detoxification type of reaction, which is usually a signal that you're kind of on the right path, but probably doing too much of it, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. Too much of anything is not a good thing. You're killing something too quickly and it can't get out of your body is a Herxheimer reaction. Yeah. For those who haven't heard of it. Mm -hmm. Exactly. And just to kind of back up a little bit, I kind of dove right into Ibu, but ozone, you know, what does ozone do, right? Why is it good for people? And it's really, I think of it as three main pillars that it does. It lowers unwanted inflammation in the body. Inflammation is not always a bad thing. When we get an acute infection, we actually want a little inflammatory burst Mm -hmm. to kill it off. If we get a little cut, we want a little local inflammation to make sure we don't get an infection. So inflammation is not always bad, but chronic unwanted inflammation is very bad Mm -hmm. and contributes to a lot of chronic disease states. So it lowers unwanted inflammation. And then it also balances out the immune system. And so if your immune system is not working well enough, it can really rev it up. And if it's overactive, if you're using the right dosages of ozone, it can actually lower it down. Hmm. And so think of it as Star Wars balancing the force really Mm -hmm. is what it does from, Mm -hmm. from both an inflammation standpoint and an immune system standpoint. And then I think of kind of a third pillar of what ozone does, increasing energy in the body at the cellular level. And most of energy in the body is really kind of the final product. The currency of energy in the body is ATP. And it's produced by the mitochondria, which are in many cells in the body. And when our body has enough energy, when it has enough ATP, it can heal itself so much better. And unfortunately, we live in a toxic world and there's so many toxins that really tamp down our ability to create energy at the mitochondrial level. And so very few people are actually making energy optimally. And so if we can get more energy production, again, like I already said, it leads to a more optimal healing prognosis. 
And when you're talking about cognitive decline, you've got to have that energy. You need to have the mitochondria really humming. Otherwise, they're finding post-mortem autopsies that there's really a mitochondrial insufficiency going on. And that's one of the drivers for a lot of the cognitive decline, the Alzheimer's, and the bodily inflammation. You don't want bodily inflammation if you are going to age well and keep your ability to remember things. Yeah. And on the brain, cognitive decline, mitochondria, Mm -hmm. different tissues in the body have different amounts of mitochondria. And so some people might hear the mitochondria is like the engine of the cell, Mm -hmm. right? Or I think of it more of like a furnace that's producing energy. Mm -hmm. And certain tissues, again, have more mitochondria and the brain is where the most mitochondria are. Mm -hmm. There's some other areas, ovaries are very rich in mitochondria, heart, is very rich in mitochondria, but brain, it's where most of our energy production is actually occurring at at the mitochondrial level because our brain needs it, right? Without our brain, I mean, we can even have mechanical hearts nowadays, right? We can do lung, we can do lung transplants. We can do liver transplants. We can kind of switch out a lot of our organs, but the brain is like, obviously (laughs) we're not close to that yet. Probably never will be. Probably not. (laughs) So tell me about the research that's been done. Has there been any real good research done in ozone? For the skeptics out there saying, do I really want to do this? Is it really going to help my brain? Yeah, good question. So it's been used from a therapeutic Mm -hmm. standpoint for a century a full-on century. Now, it didn't probably gain a lot of traction until the 1950s, probably more like 1960s, more in Europe, especially Germany. But it's been used a lot since the 1960s, 1970s. So we're talking 50 years, millions of therapies over this period of time. Such a low-risk profile, just from an anecdotal standpoint. And you know, when something stands the test of time, there's probably something to it. Now, there's definitely been actually a decent amount of research on various ozone therapies. In my office, in the past 12 months, we actually completed two rounds of EBU studies. Great. Yeah. And this second round that we just did over this past summer of 2023, uh, we had 20 patients, did three sessions, three EBU sessions each, and then we pulled them in a week later. And we were doing blood work along the way and having them fill out some subjective feedback as well. And going into it, I thought that we would have good results or kind of quote good results, but you'd you'd never really know. There's definitely a certain amount of blinding in this study and, you know, sent off to someone else to run the statistics. And it was really interesting because we ran a before and after like cytokine panel. So there's a lot of cytokines, but some of the more well-known ones have a lot to do with immune system and inflammation over the past, since 2020, we've the cytokine storm, right? That's not a desirable thing. We don't don't want a cytokine storm. And so we looked at this cytokine panel, 18 different cytokines, some inflammatory, some pro, some anti-inflammatory ones. And overall, cytokines are kind of like a bowl of spaghetti. They're very mixed and it's hard to know exactly what's doing what. But overall, the trend was definitely in a good direction. So three EBU sessions, one week apart, and then even one week later, cytokines improved. Now, there's a few other things I can share if you... I would like that. Please. Okay. All right. CRP, HSCRP. So that's a general inflammation marker. 
that was shown to decrease, not just from like right before the session, each session to right after the session, but truly one week after even that third session shown to decrease, I believe that was 14% on average. And then there was fibrinogen, which is, it's an inflammation marker, but a little bit to do with blood stickiness as well. And most people's blood is a little too sticky. Mm -hmm. And so we want to generally bring it down because very infrequently see somebody's who's is too low. Most people's are too high. So it's too sticky of blood. And what we saw was a definite decrease by that one was about 24% or 25%, I believe. Um, so very significant numbers mm-hmm. in everybody. Did you do lipid panels? No, no lipid panels. Okay. Next time. On this one. Yeah. Anecdotally, I can say that it lowers total cholesterol. Not that that's the end goal, yeah. really. You want to improve the quality of the cholesterol. And I can say anecdotally that it improves, mm-hmm. but I don't have any official research to prove that, or at least on these studies. And then there was another one, SED rate or ESR. And that's a that's a huge blood stickiness marker. And that actually decreased over 120%. Oh my. And that's which just is three sessions. Really phenomenal. Yeah. 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 And it would happen even just with one session. Mm-hmm. So it was like twofold. These changes improved over even just one session. Mm-hmm. But then it was interesting because we wanted to see, does it last, right? And in this study, we only carried it out one week. So that's all we can say we know. Mm-hmm. But it, it truly lasted. The effects lasted. Mm-hmm. And for the SED rate, it was almost just as much. It was like 135% just from before to right after one session or each session. But then even one week later, it was 124%. So. Wow almost just as much. That was a big one to find and really um, interesting. And I can say anecdotally that probably one Ibu session, the effects last, I suspect, somewhere in the three to six week range. Okay. Okay. But again, that's that's more anecdotally. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. yeah. So that was really neat to do that study. SOTMED funded part of it. Mm-hmm. So, and they have an Ibu machine. And so that was really great of them to see because it's like we think we know what we know but we don't (laughs) until we do that's really impressive for us relatively small practice like that to start into that kind of research that's cool yeah it was honestly it was the first time we've ever done any kind of research and took a little work up front but have a really awesome team so we were able to do it and thankful to have done it i bet now tell me about what you add to the ibu treatments that's where I've seen you as being especially innovative and people come to you from all over the country, all over the world, because you really know what you're doing. You don't just do the, the ozone, the Ibu treatment. You, you kind of add things in. Yeah, yeah. And so something also that we kind of found from the, that study was there's some other like minor electrolyte shifts. And, mm. you know, Ibu, when you're giving a huge dose of ozone, because ozone speeds up metabolism, you can get a potentially, if, if you're not metabolically flexible, you can get a huge blood sugar drop. We can easily mitigate that just by having people eat a well-rounded meal before doing this session, blood pressure, like just be well hydrated. So there's a few things that we've been working through. We first did this, um, I've built my own Ibu machine and we started doing this three years ago, October of 2020. And since then we've done 1500 of these sessions. So it's a lot of 
sessions and it's been a learning process, you know, and I've always tried to be upfront talking to patients about, you know, potential pros, potential cons, and being totally honest, like this is what we know and this is what we don't know, but we've gone through this. And I also realized there's a lot of people who have this other kind of category of vasovagal response that people can get when they do an EBU session, which is typically minor, but it doesn't seem minor to the patient in the moment. But I realized this happens more with what I call brittle autonomics. So, and that really comes down to anybody who has any amount of anxiety, whether it's like robust, obvious anxiety, or even if people sometimes try to play it cool and uh, walk in, but there's really this like underlying level of nervousness, whether it's about the session or just in life in general, those are the individuals who seem to have vasovagal type of symptoms. And so we give them pre-EBU nutrient IV, and it's got different ratios of different electrolytes and vitamins basically to help calm that person out and just really bring them into a state of equilibrium. Mm -hmm. So that's something that really came out of all those experiences, individual experiences, but then also the study. So it was neat to do that. Yeah. And we also add in, I add in a lot of fulvic acids too, because ozone can really stimulate phase one and phase two uh, detox symptoms. Uh, So again, kind of at the beginning, we talked about too much of a good thing can create a detox reaction or a Herxheimer's reaction. And so Mm -hmm. I want to neutralize as many of those toxins that get mobilized during a process, like an EBU session, or that might be mobilized. How do we bind those really well and effectively so that Mm -hmm. they don't cause some unwanted fatigue, for example, later that day or Mm -hmm. maybe the day after? Or get reabsorbed back into the body, which you don't want. Exactly. Like if we're going to mobilize it, yeah, we might as well take it out. Mm-hmm. So fulvic acids, if you're taking a good quality fulvic acid, it can actually go um, into the gut, but then it can actually go outside of the gut and into all the tissues, including the brain, which that's the big one. And it can grab those toxins, whether you're talking about heavy metals like lead, mercury, pesticides, herbicides, mold leftovers, mold biotoxins, parasite exoskeletons. It has the ability to bind a lot of different toxins. And if we do a good amount of that, we can also, again, work in tandem with huge amounts of ozone and oxygen. Yeah. And then occasionally we'll throw in some methylene blue as well. That's not like a standard thing that we do with everybody. I'm a huge fan of just trying something and seeing how it goes. And then we can kind of course adjust, right? Mm -hmm. Getting on the ship to go from California to Japan. I just want to kind of continue to course adjust so that we don't end up Mm -hmm. somewhere totally, you know, Alaska or Australia, right? So methylene blue is one of those things that we oftentimes like a second or third session we might try and see how a person responds to it too. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. And we'll talk more in a minute about the benefits, the many benefits of methylene blue. Yeah. So in the ideal world, if you think that the effects of an EBU session last for three to six weeks, how often are you personally getting an EBU session? Mm, Do you get one every month? Yeah, or are you like the cobbler's kid? You don't get it very often. The cobbler's kid. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> what an embarrassing question to well, be asked. Yeah, no, I... I'm sorry. No, no, <laughs> it's totally cool. So I'm a pretty healthy person. I'm yes. fortunate enough I don't have any chronic situations going on. So I would, in an ideal world, I would probably do it once a quarter. 
Once a quarter. Okay. Someone who's biohacking, pretty darn healthy, like eating well, exercising well, doing the lifestyle stuff pretty well. Mm-hmm. Nobody's perfect on that, but just pretty well. I would go once a quarter, okay. but then it's more and more frequent the more sick someone is or the more in need somebody is of a healing process to occur. So if someone's in the throes of a Lyme flare-up or mold, then it could be once a week for two or three weeks. Mm-hmm. and then. But then I like to pretty quickly kind of start spreading that out every two weeks and then every three weeks. And then I, I tend to find people generally don't need to be doing it every week or every two weeks mm-hmm. for that long which is nice. Good, good. And so how can someone go about finding a good Ibu practitioner? Because I've seen in different offices, a lot of variations in machines. Yes. Some of the machines look a little bit old and some of them do you think, okay, this one's state of the art. This is new. Is that something that should concern me? And how do you find a good practitioner for it? You know, I actually don't have a great answer to how to find a good practitioner. There are different types of machines out there. You know, I think it's not so much just about a machine. It's about how a practitioner uses the machine, right? Mm -hmm. Because I can have a hammer. We can all have the same hammer, but Mm -hmm. if we're hammering the same force on everything, it might work for some people, but it's not going to work for everything. I mean, all I can talk about is my experience. So this is not Mm going to be to knock on anybody else's machines out there, but I can say that a practitioner who has the SOTMED machine because they do do the training. What I can say about SOTMED is they are very interested in continually improving their machine. I I know for a fact that they're very active on that. They didn't just create a machine and leave it. Like they're going to be good for the next 10 years, right? They are in the process of actively improving it. So I'm totally not knocking anybody else's machine out there. Again, I can just speak that I know that a practitioner who has a SOTMED machine is probably a safe bet. So at this point, I actually built my Eboo machine without even knowing Eboo was a thing. I just was one of those things that made sense to me. So when I first started doing it, it, there definitely were probably only like three or four, maybe five people in the US doing it. Fortunately, it's becoming more and more common, which is great because there's so many people out there who need, who would benefit from Eboo. So it's on the rise very rapidly. That's what I can say. But if, if someone Googles it and then calls them up, do you use the SOTMED machine? They're probably a good option is my guess. Okay. But also caveat that with there's a lot of other wonderful Eboo practitioners out there who are using other machines as well. And one last question about Eboo, and then yeah. we'll kind of wrap that up and move on to Methylene Blue. But how much is this going to set a person back to do a session or maybe a group of three sessions? Yeah. So in my office, it's right around a thousand dollars per session per session. Yeah. And there's definitely offices out there that are charging like $3,500, $5,000 for one session. I would say your average is probably closer to like $1,500 to $2,000 a session. So it's definitely not an inexpensive therapy. Mm-hmm. And what I can say is this is a process where you have to have one nurse for one patient there the whole time you're getting the blood. It's almost like a dialysis session. I mean, in a way, because the blood is going out, it's going through a machine, coming back into you. And it's really important to have eyes on that one person for the whole session. So it's a lot of human power involved. Mm -hmm. 
And you can't reuse the whole filter on a second patient, right? It's one filter, one tubing filter set per patient. So there's a lot of cost to it. Having said that, though, in the last three years, I've definitely seen the overall cost from other offices come down and down, which is kind of a natural thing that happens over time. Anytime there's a newer technology, right, it starts out a little bit more expensive and then hopefully comes down over time. So, but it definitely can set people back. And what I'll also say on that front is we've had people who repeatedly come from other states for these sessions because it has really moved the needle for them. And so Ibu is never my first line. Just because we do Ibu in our office, it's not like, oh, everybody who walks in the door should get an Ibu session. Like it's really important to be doing the basic lifestyle modifications as getting a decent grade on each of those first, you know, and then where are we deficient on something? Where are we toxic on something? Be working on those. Maybe perhaps try some of the other simpler IV therapies, like even just a major autohemotherapy version of ozone potentially, right? See how somebody responds to that. If they respond really great to that, maybe they never even need to go to EBU. And yet, Having said all of that, sometimes people still want the needle to be moved more. And so that's where it's like, okay, Mm -hmm. let's try an EBU session and see how you respond. And then we just see if it's worth it to you, not just from a financial standpoint, but like worth your time, money, effort, all of it. Mm -hmm. Good. Anything else before we move on? Um, Oh, there's so much we could, but no, I, I think we did a pretty good job of hitting the highlights there. Okay. So you mentioned at one point that you sometimes put methylene blue into that line when you're doing EBU. Methylene blue. Tell us about it. What is it? Yeah. So methylene blue is, it's actually a dye. It is a synthetic medication, although it's over the counter. Most people think of it more like a supplement, but it is actually, it was the first drug on patent back in the 1880s. And initially it was used to treat malaria, which is a parasite. And it was kind of forgotten for a number of decades. And it's been interesting, myself included. When I started my practice in 2011, I'd only heard about methylene blue being used in the emergency room for uh, carbon monoxide poisoning or cyanide poisoning. And I had no idea that it had so many other potentially useful benefits. Now, What I'll say is people hear, oh, it's a dye. It's a synthetic dye. Do I really want to be taking it? So while I would say our body definitely does not have a deficiency of methylene blue, (laughs) right? I like to kind of highlight that because I'm always trying to focus on how do we bring down toxins and how do we fix or help deficiencies, right? It's kind of the first Mm -hmm. things that we're doing. But then it's like, okay, what else can we use, right? That might be beneficial. Mm -hmm. And methylene blue is... On that same kind of line of thought. And what else can we use that doesn't have a very high side effect risk, Mm -hmm. right? That's another huge piece of it. So if we can try something and there's like almost no downside to using it, hey, why don't we try it? Especially if it's very affordable. Methylene blue is very affordable, Mm -hmm. especially by EBU standards. And so why is it so useful though? Let me continue about the side effects. The side effects potentially harmful if you're using it in very high doses. Okay, now we're talking over maybe 500 milligrams. Now, how much do we use in our practice? I'm usually recommending one milligram a day, maybe up to as high as 70 milligrams in a day, depending on the person's situation. So the dangerous realm is more like 500 milligrams and probably honestly more like over a thousand, even 4,000 milligrams. So you use anything 
in mm-hmm. too much, it's going to be a bad thing, of course. Mm-hmm. So I wouldn't use it in mega, mega high doses, at least all the time. I wouldn't use it if you're pregnant. But other than that, it's pretty darn safe, especially when you're using it in low doses. How about with antidepressants? Yeah. Anybody who Googles it will be warned not to use it with antidepressants. And again, in the case studies where that was noted to be a dangerous combination, that was in people who, again, were getting those mega doses. Okay. Oh. Open surgeries on the parathyroid during surgery, we're having methylene blue being poured on them because it's a very good stain because it gets concentrated in the mitochondria, which is a good thing and why it's used. And then that person, those people are also noted to be on antidepressants. And so again, we're talking in mega, mega doses. If someone's using 70 milligrams or less, I don't believe that there's a single report out there. I could be wrong and I'm happy to be corrected on this, but I don't believe there's a single report out there of methylene blue, again, like a 70 milligram or less dosage interacting negatively with antidepressants. And you're talking per day, 70 milligrams per day, because it stays in your body, some people longer than others. So do you wait until you see your pee returning to the normal yellow color? It's not blue anymore or green before you take it? Yeah, great questions. So the half-life of methylene blue is approximately 12 hours. Again, it depends on the person's kind of health status, frankly. And I actually don't recommend people take it every day. My personal stance is less is more typically, Mm. or I would say rather lowest effective dose. That's more accurate of a statement. It's like, where is that dose that is effective? Because the moment we get over a certain dose where we're not really getting any extra benefit, it's probably Mm. a sign that we don't really need that. And it probably is too much. And um, it's still the synthetic thing. So when I'm backing up, the beautiful thing about methylene blue is it goes right to the mitochondria again. Very few people out there have perfectly functioning mitochondria, okay? The healthiest of the healthiest probably don't need to be taking methylene blue. Mm -hmm. For the rest of individuals, anybody who could use a little bit better mitochondrial energy production, methylene blue might be a good idea to start at least trying, right? So myself, I actually only use methylene blue if I'm wanting a cognitive enhancement temporarily. If I'm going to be taking a test, I'll use methylene blue for myself or my patients. If they feel like they're coming down with something like a virus or a bacterial infection, that's a really great time to get methylene blue on board. If someone wants to use it as a nootropic, so to help, again, cognitive enhancement um, for whatever reason, I would potentially use it. Say you have a student in college going to classes five days a week. I mean, it could be like, use it five days a week. I would always take a couple days off. But again, I would be suggesting that dosage to be somewhere around maybe four to Mm -hmm. 30 milligrams. So not even a, a 70 milligram dosage. The higher the dosage goes, the more of an anti infective it is. So it works so well on UTIs or chronic UTIs. We'll give them up to 30 milligrams intravenously. And then that methylene blue concentrates in the bladder and it can act as a oxidant, basically a pro-oxidant in the bladder as it concentrates there and basically kill off an acute UTI infection. But a lot of people also have chronic UTIs. And so, so many people are given 
round after round of antibiotics needlessly when they could just be taking methylene blue, which actually is like helping their cognition, helping anywhere there's a mitochondria. If there's inflammation anywhere in the body, it's like it's helping all of that. And then it, side tangent, we also like to put red and infrared light over the bladder area okay. during those IV sessions. So that can be hugely beneficial. I mean, I think, I don't think I'm wrong on this, but I think every person that is coming with a chronic UTI who has tried that, it's just been completely neutralized wow. and in like long-term neutralized. I find it interesting that you say, don't take it every day, because if the mitochondria needs support, you would think, okay, you take that, not a lot of it, but you take it every day. But you're saying, no, 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 no. Just take it periodically when your day needs it. I think so. Okay. I'll also add to that. If I get a really bad night's sleep, so again, I'm pretty healthy, but if I get a bad night's sleep, I have three little kids and practice to mm -hmm. run, right? Like I get bad night's sleep sometimes. That would be a great time to use methylene blue. Yeah. Also dosage matters, right? So if someone's taken four milligrams of methylene blue, for instance, probably could take it every day without any issue. But I think it also might be possible to take 100 milligrams of methylene blue every day and for it not to be a problem. But I don't think that that research has really been well delineated yet. So because it's a synthetic thing that our body does not naturally produce, I tend to want to reach towards other sources, other healthy sources to also enhance the mitochondria. You know, how many people are able to do a little bit of intermittent fasting because that helps improve mitochondrial function, right? It's like how many people are doing their cardiovascular exercise, which is more just like slow, continuous exercise. How many people are doing those quick bursts of exercise, like hard bursts of exercise, because those are really the best ways. And then eating a clean diet that's toxin-free or as toxin-free as we can, right? Um because those are the real ways to enhance the mitochondria, getting amazing sleep, keeping well hydrated, preferably with structured water um, or mineralized water, keeping our minerals up. Like almost everybody is mineral deficient to some level. And so if we're doing all of those other things, we're not going to need to take this synthetic methylene blue. Excellent. However... There is also absolutely, like I just said, I get a poor night's sleep sometime. I go through time periods where I'm not exercising well or enough, right? Like we live in this world, this busy world. And so there's absolutely this huge opportunity to use methylene blue for a lot of good for a person. There's a lot to kind of tear apart there or to pull apart there. And so I really just think it matters who the person is and what their situation is and what they're hoping to get out of it. And then starting on a low dose and tapering up, taking note of what they notice, right? Because if you're noticing an improvement in cognition, it's probably a sign that methylene blue is a really good thing. But if there comes a, a certain dosage where you're like, I'm not really noticing something, I'm just saying potentially maybe that's mm -hmm. kind of the max mm -hmm. dose that you need. That makes sense. Methylene blue goes to where the body needs it most. Mm -hmm. Wherever there's an energy deficiency, that's where methylene blue goes. And that's like one of the powers, the beautiful things about it. And we probably should add, if someone's getting into this, they need USP grade. Super important. Yes, I'm glad you mentioned that. 
Yes. There's a lot of methylene blue on the market. It got kind of a negative connotation during the earlier pandemic when people were trying to use it, but using like fish tank grade. It is used as a fish tank cleaner, but it's not really a fish tank cleaner. It's actually for the fish themselves to decrease infections in the fish. So the same reason we give it to the fish we can take it. But there's a lot of adulterated methylene blue out there. And so it's really, really important to get a a high quality source that is just completely free of toxins. Mm -hmm. Yes. Mm -hmm. So thank you for bringing that up. You're welcome. Um, And one other question that I have, I have um, mutations within the methylation pathway. I have something in the COMT plus area that makes it hard Mm -hmm. for my body to take in more methyls. And so here I am thinking, okay, I'll take methylene blue. But what I found is it drives my homocysteine really low, like 5.3, which is really too low. Mm. Is this an indication this is not the right thing for me, even though it does help me cognitively a lot, in your opinion? That's really fascinating. And so I would go a lot more off of symptoms than a laboratory Mm -hmm. test. Because the objective data is really awesome. But if you're noticing an enhancement, mm-hmm. I am a cognitive mm-hmm. enhancement, then to me, that's a really good thing. And this is also another case to like demonstrate, make sure you're on the lowest effective dose, yep. right? So I don't know if you know off the top of your head how much your dosing is. Right now, um, I had been taking five milligrams but I was taking it every day. But then uh, my practitioner just bumped me up to 24 milligrams. So yeah. And so uh, test it out, right? Does, does 24 milligrams help more than five milligrams or more than 10 milligrams? Because five milligrams did it. Yeah. So it'll be really interesting. I don't, have you tried the 24 milligrams yet? I have. And that mm-hmm. also helps, I would assume, from a cognition. It, it helps too. And it's easier to take. This one happens to be in capsule form yeah. instead of taking the drops. The drops are so messy. They get all over. Yes. They they get on the counter. They stain the counter if you don't put Dawn on it to clean yeah. it up. Yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah. So, you know, my, my take is lowest effective dose because you also want to pay attention to the objective markers as well. Mm-hmm. And so... Mm-hmm. You know, you don't know until you test and until you subjectively test as well, though. Being on 24 milligrams, is that blood marker going to go even lower? The homocysteine, exactly. right? Like, and that's what I'm worried about. So that's where I would just like, I would test it and kind of take note. Does mm-hmm. Because if it stays the same, oh, okay, mm-hmm. maybe maybe 24 milligrams is, is like is a right. great dose for you. Yeah. Have you tried Troscriptions, no. the little trochee by any chance? No, I haven't. Yeah, so no affiliation with them. But so Troscriptions.com, like trochee plus prescription, Troscription. Mm-hmm. I don't know if it's with an S or not, but .com. They have a few little products. One, pure methylene blue, good quality for sure. And it comes in... I think the trochee is 16 milligrams, but it can pretty easily be cut into quarters. So you mm-hmm. can do f- like four, four milligrams at a time. So that could be another option to try. They also have a really cool one. It's, I think it's called blue canatine. Um, that's actually what I use before my board exam questions. Cause it has like 
methylene blue plus one or two milligrams of nicotine and then like a super low dose of caffeine and then a super low dose of CBD. And it's just like, that's a really Mm -hmm. amazing combo all in really, really low dosages. So it's like this really calm energy, calm energy, calm focus. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And what was that called again, Yoshi? I think it's blue canatine from Troscriptions, Troscriptions Troscriptions.com. And anything else on methylene blue before we wrap this up and talk about structured water just briefly, because you mentioned it. No, again, it's kind of one of those things where I could talk another hour easily on methylene blue, but I think we got the highlights again. Excellent. Now, talk about structured water. I've heard you say that there's an easy, inexpensive way to make structured water. You don't have to get those special things to go under the sink. Yeah. So it's interesting. I'll just kind of real quickly, mitochondria mentioned those are like the main furnaces, energy Mm -hmm. producers in our body. And yet anybody can kind of delve into the science. What's really fascinating is the numbers that we have that are how much ATP the mitochondria make does not add up to being enough energy for our body to actually do anything other than be a blob all day long. Hmm. And so there's something lacking in the science. There's something major lacking from standard medical scientific understanding of where we're really getting all of the energy from that our bodies actually use every day, like every, every second. There's some suggestions out there and it makes sense to me logically because we're humans and we developed under the sun and with fresh air and minerals and fresh streams. And I believe that where we get most of our energy from is sunlight and clean water and minerals, and then add some fats in there and proteins in there as well, of course. And people can look into Gerald Pollack and there's other researchers and scientists and doctors now that are looking into structured water more, but structured water is water that's not just at randomness. When we drink unfiltered water, regular tap water, it's generally been stripped of so much of the nutrients and then fluoride is usually added in plus other chemicals to clean it. And so it's like, it's dead water. Basically just means that the H2Os are in very random sequences all balled together. But when we add minerals like the whole plethora of minerals, 70 plus minerals into water, and then add light, it's like sunlight, it becomes structured. Had a little shaking in there and it becomes structured. And so adding just a pinch of relatively toxin-free Himalayan salt or a good quality Celtic Mm. sea salt, because those have 70 plus minerals. It's not just sodium and chloride. It's got all the minerals. And so you add that, just a dash, we'll be very official about this, a dash of salt, of quality salt into filtered water, very filtered water, even distilled water. This is like one of those instances where I'm a huge fan of actually distilled water, but then add in the salt and then put it in a glass jar in the sunlight, even just for a couple of minutes, much less like 20 minutes, half an hour. And it's just going to get chock full of photons are just going to go to work on the minerals and the, and the H2O, the water, and then it's going to become structured. And so all suddenly those H2Os are like stacked in a nice sequence and it's way more hydrating when we take it, when we consume it, it's way more hydrating. So you can actually get truly hydrated because if you're drinking a liter of your normal tap water every day, most people are not going to be well hydrated with that. You'll be peeing it out 
for sure, but mm -hmm. that doesn't mean you're really well hydrated. It doesn't mean that that H2O is actually going into the intestines, getting absorbed and going inside the cells and hydrating the cells. And when that structured water enters the cells, combined with other proteins, amino acids, and fats, we get this like gelatinous type of structured water slash gel. And when the light, the sunlight, humans are supposed to be outside, not inside getting fake light, mm -hmm. where we're only getting a couple of frequencies, but the sunlight has this like full spectrum of mm -hmm. light, visible light and invisible light. So all of these frequencies hit us, hit our skin, go into the cells, hit that structured water and create energy. And that is probably where we get the majority of our energy, not just from ATP that mitochondria are making. Did that make sense? Uh, yeah, it makes sense. You probably have big glass tea containers. That's the biggest yeah. thing I can think of. That You could put this water in and put your little bit of salt in there, set it out in the sun for exactly. 20 minutes. Yes. Is that how you do it at your house? Yeah. And I use other structuring water mm. devices as well. Okay. So it's just hit it from a, many do, different directions okay. for sure. Yoshi, we're about out of time, and I know you've got a patient at the top of the hour. You were so kind to give us this block of your time. Thank you. Is there anything else you would like to add when you're thinking about cognitive health and how to stay sharp? I, I mentioned it a couple times, but it's like it's going back to those the basics, the lifestyle modifications, right? It, and it's not that everybody has to get an A plus in every category of exercise and diet, but it's like we need to be getting a decent grade, a B plus, an A minus. You know, maybe some categories are you are getting an A plus, and some categories it's only a B plus. But it's like we really want to be kind of as close to a four student in those areas. Because there's a lot of other things that we can do. Ozone, methylene blue, right? I mean, the world is full of different companies coming up with things that can help our cognition, which is beautiful. I've tried many of them and I love a lot of them. But at the end of the day, if we're trying to just put those on without taking care of business, um, it just doesn't make sense. We're going to be spending effort where it shouldn't be guided getting good sleep focus on that like that's probably the number one thing i would I, it's hard to put number ones i have a lot of number one things <laughs> um, but it's like get good sleep number one <laughs> gotta be eating well number one <laughs> gotta be exercising and it's like all the different yeah. types of exercise it's not just exercise a stroll around the block is not nearly enough right we need to be working hard, even if it's just for a short time period. And then a sense of purpose too. That's so important in the sense of community. I mean, we are social beings and what I've noticed from patients. And I mean, I can just think to myself, like it's so important to have that sense of community because otherwise life is just not as sharp and our cognition is not going to be as sharp. I agree. Versus if we have a community who we care for, who we know they care for us. You look at the blue zones, right? The people who live the longest, it's, it seems to actually come down much more to do with their community than any other factor for all of the blue zones. It's really that community. And you know, I'll just kind of end on... There's the smokers. There was a study in it. I cannot cite it. I wish I could, but it's like the people who smoke solo, those are who get disease from smoking cigarettes versus the people who smoke in community with friends, laughing, having fun. There is actually almost no deleterious effect from the cigarette smoking. Really? 
that is just, I mean, that's just mind blowing. And so you could be eating a really like organic, whatever it is, pick your diet, paleo, whatever it is, like this really healthy food. And if you're thinking negative thoughts, that food is going to go in. You're going to have more dysbiosis. You're going to have a leaky gut versus you could be eating a I'm not going to say like a French fry, that's really horrible, but like you could be eating non-organic salad. And if you're doing it in community and loving on each other and, and laughing and you're eating it, your gut is going to be so happy and healthy and the neurotransmitters that your gut is making, and it's going to tighten up so you don't have leaky gut. And that food is going to do a better job than eating a healthy food. And so it really goes back to community and love and purpose. Um, those are my number ones. <laughs> those are my four number ones. Such a great message. Such a great message. Dr. Yoshi Ram, I appreciate your time today. Thank you so much. Yeah. And thank you for doing what you're doing and spreading the word and helping people and educating people because we all need it. It's a sense of purpose. I'm loving it. Just loving it. You have a great yeah. day. Likewise. Thank you. You've been listening to the Cutting Edge Health Preventing Cognitive Decline podcast. Any information shared here is for educational purposes only. Guest opinions are their own. This podcast is not responsible for the veracity of their statements. Do not use any of this information without first talking to your doctor. Cutting Edge Health, LLC, is not responsible for what may happen to you if you use their information in place of official advice from a medical professional. Thanks for listening. Be well.